0: Good morning and welcome to Rising. Brianna and I just finished our House of the Dragon recap (laughs) off screen for you. Although if you'd like to see us talk about House of the Dragon, get in those comments and demand it. let us know. (laughs) All right, what are we actually talking about today?
1: Well, slightly less interestingly, yesterday President Biden touted the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the effect the American Rescue Plan had on the economy. Let's watch.
2: Building an economy that finally works for working families. We started with the American Rescue Plan. That's taken us from economic crisis to economic resurgence.
1: Meanwhile, Biden's Fed chair Janet Yellen noted the hardships Americans are facing, but again said we are not in a recession.
3: Inflation is way too high and it's essential that we bring it down. And that's something that Americans feel every day. And I think it's what's causing uh, them tremendous distress. And of course, that is President Biden's, our administration's uh, top economic priority to do that. But um, we're not in a recession. The labor market is exceptionally strong.
0: Last week, Senator Elizabeth Warren fired back at Fed Chair Jerome Powell over the Fed's decision to raise interest rates as a tool to combat inflation, and she warned that unemployment would rear its head as a result. Let's watch.
3: Rate increases make it more likely that companies will fire people and slash hours to shrink wage costs. Rate increases also make it more expensive for families to do things like borrow money for a house, and so far... The cost this year of a mortgage has already doubled. Uh, Inflation is like an illness, and the medicine needs to be tailored to the specific problem. Otherwise, you could make things a lot worse. And right now, the Fed has no control over the main drivers of rising prices, but the Fed can slow demand by getting a lot of people fired and making families poorer. And while President Biden is working to Increase energy supplies and straighten out supply chain kinks and break up monopolies and bring down prices, you could actually tip this economy into recession. So I just want to say you know what's worse than high inflation and low unemployment? It's high inflation and a recession with millions of people out of work. And I hope you'll reconsider that as you drive this, before you drive this economy off a cliff.
0: Warren isn't alone, according to The Intercept's Ken Clippenstein, The Federal Reserve's own economists are warning of a severe recession if the Fed continues to hike interest rates. According to Ken, and as Elizabeth Warren pointed out, interest rate hikes are a way to put economic power back in the hands of the very rich by driving up unemployment, since higher interest rates make it more expensive for banks to loan people money, leading to less investment, like hiring workers, for example.
1: Mm. Yeah, we've we've talked on this show and to a number of economists about whether or not the Fed is basically using a blunt tool. Um, You know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail and that's what's happening here with these interest rate hikes. And it is interesting to have a more robust conversation happening about the kinds of interventions that could be done in the the alternative. Now we're seeing in places like the UK, even their conservative government saying, okay, we're going, we see a crisis with energy costs. We're going to cap energy costs at $2,000 a family. And I, I would be interested to see if those kinds of interventions ever become popular here, although I'm skeptical given that in the UK and in parts of Europe, those kind of interventions are the result of the kind of labor uprising which is only beginning to rear its head in the United States.
0: Well, also in that, I watched more of that clip um, online. Elizabeth Warren mentions that, um, you know, the energy, she asks Jerome Powell about, you know, will this will this, what you're doing help with energy costs? And he says, well, no, probably not. Uh, And she acknowledges that largely when we're talking about the energy problem, we're talking mostly about the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But then we move on, and obviously Jerome Powell doesn't have anything to do with uh, with that policy mm-hmm. specifically, or I guess neither does Elizabeth Warren, because no one votes on these. They know it's just up to Biden's discretion to just yeah. participate in this war. So I'm wondering, with the, the good news—we um, haven't talked about this yet, because you're just joining us for the, for the week now—the um, good news that Ukraine had over the weekend, they had some mm-hmm. military successes, they took back significant amounts of territory, and that—which which, good for them. Uh, they, they are the defense in this war. Um, however, I was also seeing a lot of, uh, you know, kind of mainstream commentary in response to that along the lines of, oh, you know, they could win the war any day now. They could, you know, the Putin regime will be toppled and it sounds, uh, you know, I, it's hard to know if that's true. It doesn't sound true. It sounds unlikely, in fact. And a lot of these same people are the people that I can remember from, you know, 15 or 20 years ago saying, oh, yeah, we're about to, you know, win everything in Iraq and Afghanistan, etc." So I, I want to be cautious. But the, the Ukrainians doing better um, unless that changes Russia's course of action and makes them think, OK, yeah, we, we now we really do want to pursue a diplomatic measure, that could cause more energy hardship because they're yeah. winning, and so there's going to be a doubling down oh, yeah, and a greater an investment. I mean, there's a doubling down yeah. if they're winning or if they're losing, but especially if they're winning, there's going to be, oh, yeah, we just have to hold on a little bit longer. The end's in sight, even though we know so often from these, you know, pure, these other related conflicts, it's, the end is never actually in sight.
1: Yeah, look, every war ends with diplomacy, and mm-hmm. the question is whether or not the fighting actually makes the settlements that are ultimately going to be reached more or less likely. And so this is why I think it's so important and why so many people, particularly on the quote-unquote far left, have been trying to emphasize the root causes of the conflict, not to assign blame to Ukraine or absolve Putin of responsibility or Russia of a responsibility, but to say we have to understand what instigated this crisis to have a sense of what is going to ultimately lead Russia Russia to want to back off. And again, the expansion of NATO is this, uh, you know, unspoken quantity that's still hanging in the air that isn't really affected by any of the fighting that's happening right now. And I'll be interested to see, will this make Ukraine and the West feel more emboldened about its ability to continue the ex- expanse of NATO? If so, does that really mean that Russia is going to cool its jets right now? And ultimately, if it really is about that as a fundamental issue, is any of this fighting going to militate one way or the other.
0: Right. It would be great if these successes led to, okay, Ukraine has just won a big victory, now, Let's negotiate again. Let's yeah. actually have this end to this war that that I, the estimates now, I was talking about this yesterday with Bacha, I, like, we don't know exactly, but there's credible estimates of like 50,000 Russian casualties mm. so far. I mean, this is, these people are done for nothing, mm-hmm. for the li- The young people's lives lost, horrible for their families. It's it's just, uh, war is bad. It's yeah. really bad. It's something to be avoided yeah. at all costs. And it's crippling our, uh, the our economy, economy here.
1: Global economy. Well, Wall Street is already ringing the alarm on the economy. Yes. Yesterday, the highest number of S&P 500 companies cited recession on a quarter-two earnings uh, call since uh, 2012, according to FactSet. While Goldman Sachs is reportedly preparing to lay off workers across the company as soon as next week, according to the New York Times, Goldman reported in July that its second-quarter profit had dropped nearly 50% from a year before. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. We don't really talk about you yeah, i can tell like you're
0: devastated that <laughs> goldman sachs is laying off people i can see the uh do you need <laughs>
1: well, look, Robbie, look, the, the reality is and we've talked about this as well that we companies like this not just banking companies but companies uh, you know across this kind of a sector have been experiencing record profits in 2020 2021 as the pandemic raged you know, billionaires saw the largest increase in wealth that I think that they have seen historically. So, I'd be interesting to understand better whether or not this is uh, reflective of more of a return to normal and how much this reflects an actual dip in the economy.
0: Well, right, because the, you know the shutting down of the economy that was done during the pandemic was not across the board. Right. If you know people who had small businesses, they suffered. Uh, they it was hard to make payroll. They had to rely on uh, I mean subsidies from the from the government to the 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 payments made to people to keep them afloat. Meanwhile, some major company, major tech companies, uh, <laughs> Zoom, <laughs> the, you know, the, the companies that really thrived because we were all trapped in our houses. And like, I don't, you know, Amazon I as well. Amazon as well. And look, I don't have a, I don't have a, you know, ideologically, I don't have like a natural hostility to biz- businesses, big businesses making profits. That's fine by me. Don't care. Uh, but if it's done because if their profits are greater because the government like forbid other people to make money and and at their behest and you do, you know what do they do these tech giants want the want everybody socially distanced and shun their home forever because that's how you sell more things on Amazon probably. So we have to be very, you know, wary of not. Cheer- well, obviously, you don't do this. I try not to either. <laughs> Just cheerleading the successes of big organizations, big businesses. Right. When it's not, when it's not always. I think it's often in people's benefits because those profits are because they're selling things people want. But it has to be. It has to be a fair. Right. Uh, a level, a, a level playing ground, and an environment in which you know the government says, "Well, this sector is canceled. This is okay. You can operate on this side. This is the like that's not fair."
1: Yeah, and it's worth noting that it does look like Goldman Sachs' annual income for twenty twenty one was twenty one. Billion dollars, a little over 21 billion dollars, um, and that was up a 137 percent increase from 2020, and now they're back down to 15.7 billion dollars as of June 2022, like that that 12-month cycle. So it does seem to be having it does seem that it experienced a little bit of that 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 COVID peak that so many companies did that were able to profit off of the crisis and while this might not be a, a turn, return to normal entirely it does seem to be a little bit of, of that because look mm-hmm. in 2019 there are uh, well yeah it does seem to be a somewhat of a return to normal mm-hmm. so we'll see how that continues to shape out
0: and we have some actual inflation numbers to share with you now while gas prices are down so there are some other numbers that, reflecting what Americans are seeing in other sectors food is up. rent is up 6.7% electricity. 15.8%, 15.8%, health insurance up 24.3%, which is killer.
1: Yeah. So yeah. the
0: people are really uh, suffering on a variety of fronts. And, uh, you know, it, the even though the, the gas situation has improved, which is good, probably largely responsible for Democrats no longer looking like they're going to get wiped out in November, um, the economy is far from working as it should.
1: Yeah. And then we'll see if we can get some bipartisan solutions on that health care piece. Unfortunately, um, Joe Biden is talking, obviously, about this prescription drug plan but even that has largely uh, gotten approval from the pharmaceutical industry it's only focused on a small portion of the most expensive drugs which is important obviously but far from the kind of overhaul that you'll need to get those numbers down to a place that they should be regardless i am anxiously awaiting your radar next robbie what's on your radar robbie
0: Well, remember Kiwi Farms? We talked about it on the show last week. Contrary to what you might expect if you missed that segment, Kiwi Farms is not, well, a place where Kiwis are grown on bushes, on trees. I don't actually know how Kiwis are grown, but that's not what we're talking about, so it doesn't matter. It's an online forum with some particularly nasty users who sometimes engage in harassment of their enemies, which in some cases are progressive online personalities. Rather, I should say it was an online forum. Kiwi Farms was essentially shut down last week after CloudFare, which is a tech security Company whose services allowed it to exist, they dropped Kiwi Farms in response to public pressure. It's all a bit complicated, but essentially Cloudfare bowed to the demands of Clara Sorrenti, who's a transgender activist, better known as Keffels. Keffels was subjected to very nasty, very harsh criticism and harassment from Kiwi Farms users. She also said they stalked her and doxed her, obsessing over her physical location, calling in fake police reports against her, forcing her to move, just in general making her life miserable. Now, Cloudflare CEO Matthew Prince, who's a self described free speech absolutist, initially refused to punish Kiwi Farms, but eventually gave in and reversed himself. So, the reason he gave was that there was so much content on Kiwi Farms that wasn't just toxic, but actively dangerous, it presented a real conundrum for the police to actually keep it running. Quote, We believe there is an unprecedented emergency and immediate threat to human life, unlike we have previously seen from Kiwi Farms or any other customer before, said Prince. So that was the end of Kiwi Farms. Now, the Internet Archives, also known as the Wayback Machine, deleted Kiwi Farms, which is a pretty strident example of erasing uh, Internet history, which is generally something the Wayback Machine does not do unless there's a copyright infringement involved or you specifically request them to do it. In some cases, they will. Anyway, this is the backstory. Okay, so you might be wondering why should I care? Well, that's because Keffel's claims are not as persuasive, uh, persuasive as many people thought. So, a good argument to be made that the mainstream media, which echoed Keffel's claims and demanded action, they got this wrong. As is so often the case, those clamoring for censorship are being a little bit careless in their zeal to crack down on problematic speech and expression. Now, the independent journalist Jesse Single recently dug into some of Keffel's claims, found that while there were indeed, to be clear, tons of comments about her on Kiwi Farms, much of it toxic, nasty, and, in his words, undoubtedly transphobic, there weren't a lot of actual threats against her, violent threats. Yes, she had been doxed, and yes, some Kiwi Farms users seemed upset with pinpointing her location, but she was constantly posting screenshots of their comments, very much a toxic, egging-on kind of phenomenon. So again, to be clear, I think much of what was said in this forum was pretty awful, but the internet can be an awful place. Twitter is frequently an awful place, but no one is rushing to remove it from the internet. It's because it has more mainstream protection and legitimacy. So my colleague at Reason Magazine, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, makes a similarly important point. Just because you take down one place where hateful people congregate does not mean you eliminate said hate. You might just drive them somewhere else. She writes, the problem isn't the expression of extremist views. It's the extremist views. Cutting out one digital avenue for offensive speech or organized harassment does nothing about the underlying sentiments and may only harden people in their extremist viewpoints. Feeling marginalized and attacked is powerful at building community and solidarity. See, for example, former President Donald Trump. And because this is such an important and nuanced topic relating to Internet, censorship, and so on, uh, I invited Elizabeth Nolan Brown to join us for this discussion. Liz, thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is a, a pretty complicated internet controversy story, uh, like insanely co- uh, complicated. Brie was saying she tried to listen to Jesse Singles podcast episode about it. I think we all struggled to get through the entire thing because it's such a, a confusing subject. But because it does, you know, kind of uh, involve these important internet censorship you know, discussion or light censorship, because again, these are private actors kind of doing what they think is best, but they're responding to various pressure campaigns from all sorts of people. So, you know, what was, uh, what was your takeaway after kind of the newer information came out? And, I, you know, following what Jesse said, looking more closely, it seemed like, yes, there was a lot of bad stuff, but then it was less persuasive that it was just there was so much violent threats being made that the site couldn't deal with. And like that was the, that was the reason it got shut, shut down. What, what's your reading?
4: Yeah, I mean, even if there was some some small number of violent threats, which I think that, you know, as as Jesse pointed out, it was not a large number. Maybe that they weren't just concerned with the violent threats, they were concerned with people posting our location, which even if then that wasn't a direct threat, was sort of an implied threat perhaps. But I think the big question is will taking down Kiwi Farms actually help? There's already some evidence that a lot of people who were on Kiwi Farms have moved on to um, encrypted messaging on, say, Telegram. Um, Mm -hmm. The people who came to Kiwi Farms often came from 8chan once that was shut down. So we we keep moving to different sites and different sites, but these sort of sentiments and these sort of harassment campaigns still exist. And if they're moving to encrypted apps, that's arguably worse because now no one can see them and, you know, law enforcement can't, can't uh, see if they're real or not. Nobody can judge for themselves whether or not they're real. I think just putting this in less plain view does not make the situation better.
0: Yeah, there's actually a terrorism parallel here, because uh, you, you've probably seen this study, too, right, that, uh, that dry, actually driving, like, ISIS content off of more mainstream social media sites, Facebook, etc., right, causes them to go to Telegram or, or uh, more encrypted, more difficult-to-trace messaging systems. That's actually, from a law enforcement perspective, very bad. Yeah.
4: The same thing with like um, when they shut down Backpage, which, you know, sex workers advertised on, but also some percentage, small percentage of bad people. And people say, like, well, they're, they're advertising there, we need to shut it down. But they were also helping the cops find the bad people. So I think, yeah, you have that same sort of situation here
0: yeah that's a great example. You've done a lot of uh, of good reporting on backpage, which the the federal government really harassed um, uh, the the people who had founded it who had who were who cooperated with law enforcement when there was actually criminal bad stuff going on and it's like like you don't al- necessarily eliminate the underlying criminal behavior you, you just make it harder to to trace and to identify
4: right well, and then if we're just talking about the offensive speech, like you said, there's offensive speech on all sorts of websites. And typically, you know, companies like Cloudflare that run the back ends, uh, part of Internet, Cloudflare even said in a, in a blog post, they're like, you know, we think of ourselves more like the phone company. If someone says racist or sexist or otherwise offensive things on the telephone, we don't cancel their phone service. So that's typically how Cloudflare thought of themselves. Now, with, with this decision and with, with a few other decisions they've made, like with 8chan, they're, sort of, they're sort of reversing course on that. And I think that could set a really dangerous precedent.
1: I wonder, Elizabeth, you know, what you think the line is between some of these private companies perhaps deciding that not the offensive speech, because as you both have pointed out, there's offensive speech everywhere, but the specific kind of um, doxing, the tracking. This was the woman who fled to what was it, Ireland or or something like that, and they followed her there, um, identified several places where she was, swatted her. You know, at what point do you think it is potentially reasonable for some of these companies to say, you know what, I'm getting too exposed here in terms of my legal liability for facilitating folks being able to engage in this potentially dangerous behavior on my website, and so I'm going to make the choice to, you know, quell these
4: communities? Yeah, I think that's a great point because Cloudflare was probably acting very rationally when it comes to what you mentioned with the legal liability. Uh, I just think that, you know, they, the law enforcement should be handling the people that are making the direct threats or doing this harassment campaigns, whether rather than trying to hold these third parties like like the people that do back-end services for these websites accountable.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Today, senators will hear testimony from whistleblower Peter Zakko, Twitter's former security chief, who is alleging widespread security deficiencies at the company. Now, The Hill broke down five things to watch ahead of the hearing, including whether Democrats and Republicans will form a united front. Questions on foreign interference, national security scrutiny, the shareholder vote, which is where Twitter shareholders will vote on whether to approve Elon Musk's embattled $44 million deal to buy the company, and then finally, how Tesla CEO Elon Musk factors into all of this. The shareholder vote will likely coincide with the hearing, according to The Hill, which mm. is fascinating. So the, the latest um, also is Elon Musk has claimed that the—like 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 the um the this like the The deal they made, Zatkow when he left, they gave him some money to leave, violated his agreement with Twitter when he was going to purchase the company because he was supposed to have say on these kinds of decisions, or they weren't supposed to make any. It it looks—it kind of doesn't sound that convincing to me because— there's like a carve-out for it if they thought it was necessary for the company, which obviously they're going to say is necessary for the company. So
1: Yeah, and you know, Twitter obviously has come out saying that they disagree with this now third attempt uh, at an argument from Elon Musk as to why
0: he Does not have doesn't to have to buy the company. But they company. also don't want him to buy
1: <laughs> no, but look, I mean, it, this this has come so Since far. It's the most insane lawsuit ever. It's come so far oh. from the the posture that we were talking about this in when Elon Musk first arrived somewhat triumphantly on the scene as the man who was going to save Twitter from itself.
0: Never meet your heroes.
1: I mean, I mean that's the thing. I think that so much of the conversation about these kinds of things online casts folks as Righteous free speech defenders and honorable and just and brave and courageous. And these great men are gonna swoop in and solve all the problems of various companies. And the reality is it's just business people doing business people the way it always is. And the reasons that a lot of these companies you know, infringe on speech in the way that we sometimes criticize or, you know, behave in ways that we find to be distasteful all have to do with the same kinds of incentives, bottom line incentives that are happening with Twitter now. And that ultimately would happen regardless of who was in charge, I think, with with very little in the way of tweaks.
0: Well, right. I said that even though I was um, somewhat optimistic when it looked like he was going to take over because I share his stated commitment, at least, to uh, free speech principles, he was going to run into a lot of issues, where some of these calls end up being difficult, some of the, the lines getting drawn. I, I, we talked about this uh, in my radar yesterday, the whole—I uh, I saw you had some feelings about this, this professor who got her tweet taken down uh, for, like, that really awful thing she said about Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, and then she I, was censored. And people
1: were actively trying to get her fired from her job, but somehow because of the underlying content of what she said, which is, you know, obviously the horrible thing that she was talking about was how she had no love lost for the crown, which quite acutely and in recent history caused... A great deal of death and suffering for her immediate community in Nigeria as a subject of said crown, a colonial, uh, a colonial subject, and someone under the thumb of the crown. And it's just an interesting posture, in my view, of something, uh, of of a choice to defend when she is the victim of exactly the kind of um, anti-speech pogroms that are so often defended on this show.
0: I I think what she said was very. Awful, to be clear, but, um, but no, of course she should not uh, so have. So is, is
1: being distasteful now a qualification to getting banned on a, on a no, platform? Because I... it seems to me that Kiwi Farms and any number of people who have caused people to be swatted, mm-hmm. put their life at risk, said transphobic and other kind of vile things, certainly get defense on this show quite a bit.
0: Then that's what I did. I defended her right to say those things and said she should not suffer any professional consequences from it. I looked closely at the policy she was accused of violating. And I I guess I can see why if, like, by the letter of the law, according to this policy, it, it technically could violate it. But it seems like basically everything on Twitter also violates this policy then. So I don't understand how it could be enforced in just this one. It's, it's probably an example of, it's probably low-hanging fruit for the company to say, see, we censor like liberals too, see, something like that. Um, well, I think that quite a few... I mean, the, the, the
1: point that so many people on the left make is that we are censored, in fact, in greater volumes, we would argue, than people mm. on the right. But that when we are censored, when books are banned, when there's legislation, as has come down all across the country, to actually prevent people from reading in a way that is much more reminiscent of you know, Fahrenheit or uh, 1984 and any of these books that warn against these kinds of state-sponsored interventions, there's a relative amount of silence. And I think that this Twitter example is... Not for me. Well, you know, on the part of conservatives as a whole, I certainly didn't see the normal slate of free speech advocates coming to this woman's defense, despite, I would argue, look, I personally choose not to... I, I, there's a, I think that there's a balance between the humanity of any individual who dies and their family and a certain degree of respect that I completely appreciate people want to show, and the reality that many public figures have done a lot of terrible things in their lifetime, and people who are directly impacted by those things, I think, are completely fair in wanting to express their own frustrations at the time of death or any other time they want. I certainly wouldn't tell anyone who was a victim of any kind of political pogrom, I wouldn't tell you know, a Jewish person, for instance, that they shouldn't say the most vile, hateful thing they want want to say about the death of a Nazi. That is the way the world is. And obviously, these things are in gradations and differences of values. But at the end of the day, I thought it was really telling that so many people would look at someone who is literally the subject of an oppressive colonial um, regime, Mm -hmm. not generations ago. This isn't about generational guilt, but very much in the living history of living people today that the Af- africa african countries didn't start to gain their independence basically they all became independent over the 1950s and 1960s this isn't an ancient history she's talking about experiences that her family went through including up and through the 80s into the present so i don't know it's just it was an interest it was a very interesting to see that how that played out online and how none of the same sympathy that seems to go for other kinds of groups was going to folks who were the subject of colonial rule. I don't agree,
0: though, that progressives are more likely to be censored on social media, particularly. Maybe, you sure, in Republican-controlled curriculum battles in, like, Florida and I Texas, thought, I think yes. that might be
1: true, but I think that that's uh, an important point because I, I happen to and think that— And then on
0: college campuses, no. And
1: I, well, I happen to think that real life— where people are having trying to get professors fired, I think that where people have curriculum that are barred. There was a recent story about a um, a librarian who tried to help kids like go and find. Where banned books could be found in the public library, and her assisting kids in that way, put her job at jeopardy. I think that those kinds of real life instances are, frankly, much more threatening and much more of a problem to happen than what happens on the internet. So I completely agree. Mm-hmm. I can't say qualitatively who gets more. That's an overstatement, obviously, on my part. But certainly, it's commensurate. And I think that this should be a bipartisan effort, um, and, and instead of kind of like the left versus right punching that ends up, what you know. But devol- I would say that the censorship devolving.
0: that and that. Elon Musk said was a problem and that he wanted to, uh, to, to reverse, although he's now, now trying not to take over Twitter and not going to fix it, uh, the, the kind of censorship online of whole categories of topics for discussion with relation to COVID, with relation to the Biden family, Hunter Biden, et cetera, those were socially consequential, narratively consequential um, they maybe they're, they're not as important for an individual. Right, an individual who's fired from a library. What you're talking about, I can see how that's worse for that person. But these are very, these are big platforms and organizations setting the terms of, the, of, a, of a large and important, weighty public policy conversation in terms very unfriendly to conservatives.
1: I think that policy in real life that affects entire school boards, that sets precedents for real life people getting fired isn't isn't narrow. It's actually quite broad. Moreover, if we're talking about what Elon Musk's incentives are, I did a radar very early in all of this that highlighted all of the ways that Elon Musk as an individual has been very inconsistent about speech. Like, well, he's many very people, compromised
0: like many of China. people, he
1: seems to be very invested in his own speech and his own freedoms at the expense of everybody else's. He has tried to curb his own workers' speech. As a billionaire and an, an employer, I think that has huge uh, workers' rights implications. He has tried to control what journalists, bloggers, and analysts say about his businesses and his and his products, and on and on and on down the line. So the idea that he was ever going to be a quote-unquote free speech absolutist, I think, was always betrayed by his own behavior.
0: Well, I'm really interested to see what comes out of this hearing returning to the topic at hand, uh, because like I, like I told you a, a few days ago, I, I can see it both ways. Like, I don't instinctively believe what a whistleblower has to say. or When they say, oh, I have, I have the goods, listen, to, here, because we went through this with Facebook, where that whistleblower really did not have um, what she, I mean, well, she had, you know, information about the internal uh, research that Facebook had, that Instagram had done, uh, surveys, and how it was affecting young people. Uh, but it was very, it, it was a very, I, I would say, friendly to the kind of censorship agenda of the mainstream media that uh, that whistleblower was, uh, was presenting. And we have to be careful about that. I, she got subsequently a lot of criticism, not from just from people on the right, but from people like our friend uh, Glenn Greenwald. So I, I wanna s- I'm not saying it is a repeat of that. Um, it's very technical questions. What he's, you know, he's saying, there are these massive security flaws within Twitter, which is perfectly possible, um, although he was brought in to kind of fix them so that you know, Twitter could say— Right. We knew about them, and that was your job, and you didn't do it well enough, which is—it sounds like what the company's position is. So um, it'll, it will be interesting. And, and what we pointed out, what The Hill pointed out, um, is a good question. Will Republicans and Democrats approach this from the same way? Because often at these kinds of hearings, um, or, or when, when you know, Dorsey or Zuckerberg, et cetera, have been brought before Congress to, mm-hmm. to answer questions, what you—they get— Grilled, They get attacked from both sides, but usually for opposite reasons. Usually they have all the Democrats saying, how dare you erode our democracy and the integrity of our elections and our society hates itself. And there's so much misinformation and people there's blood on your hands because, you know, you let some someone's uncle say something about masks that maybe isn't 100 percent true. You get that from Democrats. Then from Republicans, you get, you know, you know, why are you doing the you know bidding of the Democrats and censoring and silencing us? And so they can't make can't make anyone happy. It'll be interesting if if uh, if uh, how how the Republicans and Democrats handle this. Yeah. Very interesting to see. So For we'll sure. be watching that, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later this week. And we'll have more rising right after this.
1: The Oklahoma Governor's Education Secretary is calling to take away the teaching license of a public high school teacher who quit her job in opposition to House Bill 1775, a state law that bans certain race and gender concepts from schools. The teacher, Summer Boismere, reportedly helped students apply for library cards so that they could read banned books. Boisemur has received many different threats from the right throughout the situation, according to Jacobin. So here's a story where we had one of these conservative bans on literature, preventing people in schools from teaching this. Apparently, this teacher let kids know how they could you know, use the public resources of the library to go ahead and just get a library card and read whatever they wanted to read. And now her job is being threatened by uh, the, the, the Oklahoma... Um, uh, secretary, education uh, board member. I,
0: I think this story is being misrepresented a little bit. So the Oklahoma law specifically is mostly about preventing not literature or it doesn't mention critical race theory. Um, what it prevents is the teaching that uh, it it, it Pro, it prohibits just teaching discriminatory concepts or treating people in a discriminatory way. You can't claim in the yeah. teaching that, uh, that you are responsible for a, well, let me finish, that it's, it's you are responsible for, by because of your race or gender, that you are responsible for what happened to other people, what people of the same race or gender did historically. It's trying to prevent like generational racial and, and uh, gender-based guilt. Now, I, This is probably not a uh, uh, well-structured law, so I I get that it's not a good idea. Fine. Um, It doesn't specifically, based on my reading of it, mean you have to do anything whatsoever with the books in the library. That was the school officials' decision, that they wanted to panic and start taking books out of the library. This librarian made a very public show of resisting that. Fine. And so this happened. But, and I, again, I don't think the law is a great idea, but it doesn't specifically say they well, have Robbie, to take the books on the shelf. I'm That's so, just how everybody I'm so glad you
1: said that, because that is exactly the point, that a lot of these laws don't have specific language that says you cannot teach the bluest eye, bluest eye or right. any number of books that happen to accurately portray right. the fact no that- No one told her to take bluest eye off the shelf. Until recent history, you know, until my mother was, you know, in elementary school, she did not live in a country where she had equal rights. Under the law. So I don't know about generational trauma, but there are many teachers of an age where, you know, they certainly personally experience the inequities of the American judicial system. And now we're talking about the fact that people aren't even able to assign books that happen to reflect the reality of what this country was like until very recently. So this teacher was constrained under the law regardless of what the text of the law. The law is being used as as the excuse, as the hook for constraining her ability to teach students as she would like. It sounds to me like she was constrained by school
0: officials who misread the law.
1: Yes, but that is the entire point, Robbie, that these laws are intentionally written to give people this kind of power, and I think people should be concerned if they do in fact object to the underlying censorship here, that they should not defend laws that are being used as tools for said censorship. Moreover, what this teacher ultimately did was simply let kids know that they could avail themselves of a publicly available resource in the form of a library card. And now that teacher is being doubly censored for simply pointing to the existence of a public resource. This seems like it's, it's an outrage and should be very much um, the focus of a lot of I don't think uh, we public take, concern we about the scourge of censorship. That's I, happening I don't in the think we States should take America. books out of the
0: library, whether it's it's the bluest eye or J.K. Rowling or whatever, for any reason. I agree. But the, and this law for the reasons you're bringing up is not a good idea, but it literally does not tell them they have to do this. And yet censorship is happening. You know,
1: Twitter doesn't say... Uh, MAGA not allowed, and yet there's a lot of concerns about the disproportionate censorship that happens on these platforms. And it is very curious to me why there aren't more alarm bells ringing about actual teachers being forbidden from not even teaching books. I mean, there are in alarm this, bells ringing. This, this is a big case, story.
0: The ACLU is suing. This, this is case, getting tons of attention.
1: Per- the teacher couldn't even point to the idea that there is a library card. I mean, imagine the, the limits of the constraints of speech here are, well, so far and beyond what you normally even experience in these kind of searches. Circumstances. People can quibble over whether they think this book or that book is right for teaching. I have had been having robust conversations recently with a friend of mine who's a teacher who's you know shares my values and my my political values, but is very much wrestling with what kinds of materials are age appropriate for students of certain ages and certain themes. These are conversations that happen across uh, you know and pedagogical circles, regardless of your political orientation. Well, but to be at a place okay. where you can't even allow kids to know that they can go to the public library. and okay, but those and conversations are happening in pedagogical circumstances and some
0: teachers some parents don't like that those conversations are happening without or feel like those conversations were happening without parental input and the parents are now having their input and they don't agree in some cases in some jurisdictions with the school district or the boards of the teachers
1: i'm talking about the fact that teachers in the course of planning their jobs are deciding what their curriculars are going to be when
0: you said what's appropriate for children
1: yeah right they don't mean they're not talking about whether or not there's some sexual content or something like that they're just trying to put their course materials together just like anybody in the course of their job plans what they're going to talk about in in any course course of day they're trying to figure out whether kids are mature enough to handle heavy themes real themes like racism which exists and in, in this country, like, I'm, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, Like you can't sit here and say you want to teach kids. So, so many of the conservatives sit here and claim, oh, we're not trying to you know, prevent people from teaching real history. But there was, there's all of this like, worminess about the reality that we had a Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, and it wasn't the Civil Rights Act of 1864. You know, it's the Civil Rights Act of this past century. The Civil Rights Act that gave many people, I'm sorry, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm now being forced into the situation where I have to accuse everything of being race. I wouldn't have to talk about race if people didn't spend so much time trying to pretend that the very recent history of this country didn't exist. So here's a librarian. We don't even know if this was racially motivated or what the content was. All we know is that this teacher said you can go to the library and check out books and we live in such a authoritarian landscape where these conservatives are many conservatives not all conservatives are pushing forward the level of laws that make us so that a teacher who simply references the fact that there's a public resource in the form of a library and that kids can go get a library but card the, is being pushed out of her job the entity
0: Orwell, the hello. entity that said Take the books off the shelves, or I mean, this, this is pretty or willing or turn them around so people can't see it's, them it's, on the shelves. But it wasn't Republican lawmakers who said that or this law; it was the school officials. And to your point, and th- that was wrong, and that and was to your wrong. Point, so they many of these not school have done boards that.
1: have been overwhelmed by. I'm sorry, yeah. conservatives who have been empowered by these kinds of laws, which are absolutely coming down on the state and federal level. These are being pushed across across the country, and there is very little pushback. I'm sorry, very little pushback from people who say that they care about free speech absolutism, and it really undermines the credi- credibility of what I think should be a robust interest in of protecting pushback, free tons speech. Tons of
0: pushback, Brianna. Tons of pushback. Well, I'm certainly experiencing I tons to, of pushback
1: in the context I have yet of the conversation. I've to defend a single one of
0: these laws. They're all bad. All bad. Uh, We have another story, actually, and a similar-ish theme, so we're going to talk about it in this same video. An L.A. high school newspaper advisor is facing suspension after her students reported on an unvaccinated librarian last November. They published a story in their high school newspaper naming faculty member uh, Greta Enzer, who had refused to comply with the district's vaccine mandate, the L.A. Times reported in December. So she asked the newspaper advisor uh, to remove her name from the story, citing HIPAA, which prevents medical professionals from revealing patients' records uh, without their consent. Although this sounds more like it'd be a FERPA case than mm. a HIPAA case.
1: Well, the Times says the students reached out to the Student Press Law Center and were told by an attorney they were in their rights to keep Esner's name and their story. They then told Esner that they would not be removing her name. This piece led to a battle over censorship as the L.A. Unified School District now seeks to take disciplinary action against the student's journalism advisor. The Times writes that editorial content at this high school newspaper is controlled by the students. So here we go. It's an instance where Mm. a woman, um, uh, a teacher opted not to get vaccinated. Apparently, this, there was a very small number of teachers that um, this was this was back when there were a lot of vaccine mandates. This was in the fall of 2021. This was an older story, uh, at which point the school the students, the school paper rep- rep- reported apparently pretty accurately on this. they award winning, apparently local high school paper that are subject to the same kind of protections as broader media institutions outside of a high school context. The teacher, the person who didn't want to get vaccinated, uh, asked that her name be put pulled from the paper the students defended their rights and their first amendment rights to report accurately of what happened and apparently they're being backed up by some of the legal authority in the state and yet now the teacher's journalism advisor who's backing the kids up and their right to go ahead and keep this person's name in there is now having their job threatened as well
0: i mean i'm a free speech absolutist i agree they should be able to write that story and have her name in there and they sh- should not and cannot be punished for it. I I don't know, actually, what, like, the Supreme Court would say about this, because past Supreme Court uh, decisions have been much less favorable to high school students' free speech rights mm-hmm. than college students' free speech rights. I'm not saying I agree with those decisions. That's just been, unfortunately, been the reality. Uh, you know, there's a lot of what kind of political armbands you can wear and your political messages you can have, um, all that kind of stuff. So it's a, I, I, from my standpoint, I think it is actually a little bit muddled from a First Amendment perspective. That said, as a free speech absolutist, it's a public school. If it's a public school, then yes, they should in their role as journalists, be able to write stories, even, I guess, if they're unflattering to teachers. You know, I can see yeah. how this would could, like, you can imagine a world, in which, or case, edge cases, right, where this starts to get, like, quite disrupt, like, you know, what if they're just writing really nasty hit pieces about yeah, teachers think, they don't like? Like, it could so, break so down maybe, a little bit. I think that's a really good
1: point. Whatever your principles are with respect to free speech, I think a lot of these conversations miss the humanity in, in yeah. it all. And people might be surprised that I might defend the... The person who didn't want to get vaccinated, but the reality is, that I don't like the idea of her being kind of the focus of a fear campaign or a problem right. at the school to try to pressure her to change her behavior. If she doesn't want to get vaccinated, that is what it is, and whatever mandates were in effect will, may or may not have an effect on her ability to continue working there. I mean, obviously this was in the past, uh, and th- those mandates are no longer in-, in effect. But, you know, these we live in right. a part of a community, and I do think that sometimes having these hard principles that everybody defends on the internet, you know, ignore the fact that if we want to have the best community we Want and we want to have not we don't want to have teachers and students at each other's throats and communities being ripped apart by these kinds of things. Then there's sometimes a way to behave with a little bit more grace than either side has been. If I was their journalism
0: advisor, I might very well have told them to leave the name out of the story, or you know, looked at whether that was possible. And in fact, sometimes I do. Even when I write on things I feel are important and socially valuable and need to be written about, sometimes I leave names out of stories, even if I'm criticizing the person, because in in today's day and eight with you know with google search results you can really you can really wreck someone's life more than they more than they deserve more than the whatever the criticism whatever the legitimate point is make the news, value of, make, the news yeah. value of it and you, you're harming them beyond the news value and so you make editorial calls like that and it wouldn't be wrong to think about it but from a legal standpoint they ought to have yeah. the right i'm not sure they do but they yeah. ought to have the right
1: well this is fascinating stuff we'll have more rising for you right after this New reporting from the Minneapolis Star Tribune finds that policing of last year's line three pipeline protests was in part paid for by the very same company that stood to profit off the pipeline to the tune of almost $10 million, almost twice as much as previously reported. That's right, a public safety account funded by Enbridge Energy reimbursed various law enforcement agencies a total of $8.6 million to police protests against the oil pipeline's construction.
0: According to the Star Tribune, Minnesota's Public Utilities Commission created the Enbridge-funded account so that taxpayers did not have to foot the law enforcement bill. However, civil liberties groups argue the controversial deal is a violation of protesters' due process rights. Joining us now to weigh in is human rights attorney Stephen Donziger. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. Thank you for having me. So tell us more about this, uh, what what sounds to me as a kind of curious uh, funding arrangement for law enforcement, uh, although maybe in my view, not necessarily pernicious, but I'm sure you probably have a different view. Tell us more about it.
2: Well, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with normal policing paid for by taxpayers. I think there is something wrong with what happened in this case, which is supposedly normal policing paid for by a private corporation um, that is funding a law enforcement effort to essentially suppress the rights of protesters who are protesting the construction of that company's own pipeline. Um, and I think this is part of a broader, I, I would say you know, more foreboding trend we're seeing increasingly in the United States, which is increasing corporate control over what we're normally seen as public functions of government, whether it's policing, whether it's our judiciary, you know, I was prosecuted privately by a Chevron law firm in the name of the U.S. government um, for my work on behalf of Indigenous peoples in Ecuador. And we also saw this not only at the Line 3 protest, but at the Standing Rock protest prior to that. And we're seeing it, ironically, in Canada. Um, I've noticed there's a private uh, CORPORATE PROSECUTION OF AN INDIGENOUS HEREDITARY CHIEF FROM BRITISH COLUMBIA WHO PROTESTED A RAILWAY OUT THERE. SO, YOU KNOW, THESE THINGS START TO TAKE ROOT. Um, AND I THINK THEY, YOU KNOW, THE WHOLE POINT OF THE FOSSIL FUEL INDUSTRY IS TO MAKE THIS THE NEW NORMAL, SUCH THAT THEY CAN HAVE INCREASING CONTROL um, over, OVER FREE SPEECH IN AMERICA. AND I THINK THAT'S THE FUNDAMENTAL ISSUE. AGAIN, THERE'S NOTHING WRONG WITH NORMAL POLICING. I THINK THERE IS SOMETHING TERRIBLY WRONG with policing funded by a private corporation, particularly targeting mostly indigenous protesters who are on their own territory protesting
1: yeah, it's really incredible, Stephen, that we have these really robust conversations about free speech violations in a lot of contexts, including online. Um, and we have—we live in a country where so many things are considered to be speech now, including uh, dark money spending that were never considered to be speech before. But this really fundamental speech right, the right to pro- protest peacefully, like these pipeline protesters have been doing, is now not just being kind of thwarted by the normal action of the, I would argue, overly robust police state, but is literally being funded by the very people who have an interest in suppressing the speech of the protesters in the first instance. Now, you alluded to your own battle uh, with this kind of uh, corporatized, uh, uh, privatized judicial system where after you won, well, I believe was the largest judgment ever against an oil company for uh, their wanton pollution um, of the Amazon, you were literally placed under house arrest for over a thousand days for those who Aren't aware of that? You know what? What? What uh, lessons do you draw from the potential risks that come from an alliance between our criminal justice system and uh, the these these corporate actors?
2: Well, thank you for it's a great question. You know, in my case, I helped Indigenous peoples in Ecuador win a 10, roughly a ten billion dollar judgment against Chevron. that has been affirmed by the Supreme Court of Ecuador and the Constitutional Court of Ecuador and in part by the Supreme Court of Canada, and they attacked me here in the United States in New York where I live and you know had a judge charging with contempt of court for appealing an order. I turned over my computer to Chevron, which is an unprecedented order, and I got locked up for 1,000 days. The prosecutor in my case wouldn't prosecute me. He rejected the case.
3: Hmm. So the
2: judge appointed a private Chevron law firm to prosecute me in what I believe is the nation's first corporate private prosecution of anyone in the history of our country. And, you know, take it back to Enbridge and what they did at line three. You were seeing an increasing alliance between elements of our government and the corporate elite to carry out the will of the corporate elite. I mean, I'm, I'm older than you guys, you know, I grew up in seventies and eighties. I saw people like Ralph Nader really utilize government as a check on corporate power. What I've really seen the last 10, 15 years in really accelerated fashion is government almost seems in some instances to become an instrument of corporate control rather than a check on corporate control. And I think you're, you saw that at line three. And I'll point out there's still 200 people out in Minnesota who are facing sometimes very serious criminal charges for engaging in peaceful protest against the pipeline. I'm talking about felony trespassing, well, you know, historically to protest in this country, a pipeline. You would never get charged with a felony. You would never spend a day in jail. It's part of our tradition of peaceful protest. So I think these trends are scary. And I think people, you know, part of the problem is they're not that noticeable often. And I think people need to pay attention to the fact that that increasingly our public functions of government, be it policing or our judiciary, are being financed and controlled by corporations that stand that have really private interests and stand most to benefit from the actions they are funding and awesome. i you know i just think it's wrong Speaking. and i don't think corporations police in this
0: country. Speaking, though, of the of the charges, the felony. So in this uh, Star Tribune story, they highlight Mm -hmm. two um, felony charges of aiding attempted suicide, which I found baffling. But what I understand now is that the two people arrested had uh, crawled into the actual pipeline and were and I I guess they brought breathing uh, equipment and uh, had to be removed from there. So it's a very, I mean. It look, sounds to me like they were in some danger, um, and that now they've been charged for that. It, it's kind of an—I mean, attempting suicide is kind of an odd charge, even just even in general. But yeah. uh, but I don't but I don't know. That's it, a serious that's a serious kind of trespassing where you could put yourself at actual risk, in my view. So I, I don't know what you you know think should be done there. But that's it's not just you know standing on some property that's not yours.
2: Yeah, but I mean you know, is that a felony? I mean, people have a right to engage in civil disobedience. I'm, I'm not, you know, they willingly take the risk knowing that they are trying to make a point. Um, I think to be charged in that case, you mentioned each was charged with aiding the suicide of the other when they were friends and when crawled in the pipeline together mm-hmm. to sort of delay or halt its construction. I mean, to me, you know, come on that should, these people should not be put in jail, they should not be charged with felonies. But I think what, what I'm noticing with these overcharging in this situation um, and other situations is sort of an attempt, I think, to intimidate activists and not engaging in the protest that is necessary, I think, to save the planet. I mean, this is connected to the climate crisis, right? I mean, if pipelines and the fossil fuel companies keep building out and growing and growing, Um, while the planet is slowly being destroyed and people aren't allowed to protest that, I think we're gonna be in serious, serious trouble. When you lock up lawyers like myself, and I don't really wanna be the center of this story, it's about really something else. When you start locking up people for long periods of time like this who are engaging in this type of activity, I think you're really, really giving the industry way too much control over our public functions of government Um, and and I think hurting the ability to save the planet at the same time.
1: You know, I'll say that the
2: woman- Oh, go ahead.
1: I was going to I say mean, to Robbie, he, I think that he's kind of, that example really proves the point that, you know, as a libertarian, I would expect that you probably don't believe in criminalization of suicide, period. That that was a huge battle that was fought decades ago in this country about whether or not conservatives really meant what they said when certain states allowed physician-assisted suicide. Um, and then kind of national Republicans decided to try to intervene between the states, which, you know, states' rights usually, what they had said their citizens were allowed to do and what they decided to do on behalf of kind of a more or evangelical religious right. In this instance, two people who obviously are not trying to commit suicide and obviously are not trying to endanger each other are being subject to a trumped up charge that could put them in jail in order to deter them from protesting something um, that otherwise would be permitted or at least uh, subject to a much lower level of sanction. Because again, these corporations are aligning with the state in order to ramp up the criminal penalties involved here. And we talk about the word fascism a lot. We talk, throw the word fascism a lot these days. But this kind of literal alignment between the state and corporate forces is what the term was intended to actually describe. But I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, t- Stephen.
2: I was going to say, you know, the, the, another aspect of the broader issue is there is an attempt by the fossil fuel industry to criminalize protests. You're seeing this uh-huh. all over the place. Uh-huh. It, and, and lawyering as well. You saw it with me. You're seeing it, you know, with what I'm talking about at line three. There's a woman named Jessica Resnicek,
3: uh-huh.
2: um who engaged in an act of civil disobedience in a pipeline in Iowa and put, took a blowtorch to it and, you know, caused damage to property, didn't harm anybody. And when she got sentenced, her normal sentence would be three years in prison. The U.S. government, under the Biden administration, by the way, asked for a terrorist enhancement. So mm-hmm. the court gave it. She added another five years to a three-year sentence. So she's now serving eight years. It's just outrageous that you would consider someone who engaged in property destruction in an act of civil disobedience to save our planet a terrorist. But this is an extreme example of more broadly, what's happening, which is the industry, and a lot of times judges are going along with this, is trying to criminalize what used to be considered normal, peaceful, respectable civil disobedience, as a form of protest.
0: Well, it, does, it goes to show how the terrorist label, or you know, more kind of national security concerns, putting people on watch list—that all that kind of behavior. You know, Republic, Republicans were all for it, and, and you know, thinking this is only going to be used against uh, Muslim people, and now it's and now they're all you know upset. They want to disband the entire national security uh, national investigation apparatus because of how um, you know some Trump protesters have been treated. So it's a it's a good uh, lesson in you know how. how how these policies can be used against your own cause if you give, uh, if you, give uh, you know, big powerful people more opportunity and power to, um, to, occur, to wield such power. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: More rising right after this. While the Biden administration is working to push through another must pass spending bill to keep the government open beyond September 30th, there's one emergency provision of the bill Biden wants lawmakers to push a $13.7 billion provision to help, you guessed it, Ukraine. According to Responsible Statecraft, if the new aid package goes through, it will mean the U.S. has allocated nearly $70 billion for this war which tops Russia's entire defense budget, by the way, in 2021. Meanwhile, just foreign policy analyzes spending and finds that if the request passes, the U.S. will have spent more than triple what the U.S. spent in Afghanistan in the first year after 9-11, adding that interest alone costs that could uh, cost an additional $14 billion over 10 years. Um, That's a lot of money. It's incredible stuff.
1: It's incredible. And just for some context, obviously, medical debt has grown over the course of the pandemic. But prior to the pandemic, I believe it was uh, valued at about $81 billion to cancel all medical debt in America. So think of whether you or your loved ones, people you know who have been suffering under the yoke of these horrible medical bills that are very difficult to anticipate, how many people have deferred medical treatment out of fear that they will be hit with the bill that they cannot afford we're talking about all these debt jubilees and student debt cancellations and why don't we cancel other kinds of debt first. Like I completely agree. I've been pushing for medical debt cancellation for a very long time. And we're told repeatedly we can't afford those kinds of things. We can never have money to help the American people. And look, a commensurate amount of money is being spent for an international entanglement that is not really entirely clear and has not been, I would argue, sufficiently explained why America has this kind of, um, an economic investment in it to begin with. I think it really disrupts a lot of what we've been told historically about what the country can and cannot do, what where money comes from, what kind of spending causes inflation, or what kind of spending is at least um, discouraged with that as an excuse. And I think the government... Both parties have a lot of explaining to do as you start to increasingly juxtapose our enormous, limitless military spending with the crises ongoing in Mississippi and any number of things in the United States that the money could be we well spent on. We always find
0: money for this. We always find money for this, for foreign adventurism. And, uh, and, you know, we should remember as we're comparing it to what was spent in Afghanistan, massive amount of money, of lives lost uh, in, in the wars there for what benefit? We left. The country was returned to um, the, the control of the people we were fighting. Uh, we gave up eventually. That's that was what spending those resources got us there. So are we repeating that? Are we? Uh, have we learned any lessons whatsoever? What is the compelling interest this time? Is there any? Why is there never a limit? There's never. A, this is what we're willing to do. This is what we're willing to spend, and then that's it. It's, it always gets exceeded. It beyond. Far beyond what the appetite of the American people is, uh, that they not even being consulted. No one cares what the American people think or want about yeah. it. Like, who, who agrees that we should be doing this? You will find, I'm sure there's some people, but you will find far less public sentiment in support of this than there is in Congress, where it's virtually universal. Some, some Republicans now against, uh, maybe a few of the kind of more squad leaning Democrats mm-hmm. having some questions about this, although still not really publicly turning yeah. against it. It is uni- virtual unanim- unanimity in the government. There's not unanimity of thought among the people. The people are wondering how, how and why this money is being spent like this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's curious. I'd, I'd be curious to see whether or not there are any kind of force the vote moments from whether or not it's the few people on the left or the few people on the right who are in Congress who uh, have been publicly objecting to this war, at least demanding more of an explanation for our involvement, whether or not um, you know, Biden's pat- broader package is in fact held up by some of these people on principle, as they can do, as Manchin and Cinema have been kind of famous in doing over the course of the Biden administration as a whole. You know, we have, uh, there's a different conversation happening right now about whether not Bernie Sanders is going to hold up, I believe it's an appropriations bills over uh, the uh, the so-called Joe Manchin side deal to the, uh, the, um, the climate package that everybody heralded, which would undo a lot of the climate progress in that bill. Um, so I think this is a really interesting political moment that will teach the public a lot about what is possible and what is not and to the extent to which politicians are willing to say they object to a lot of things but ultimately you know oftentimes get away with not actually Putting their money where their mouth is.
0: Yeah, we need um, the the anti-interventionist Republicans and Democrats to come together and start opposing this stuff constructively. This is something. This is something the American regime wants For, for the Biden administration, generals, uh, the military-industrial complex, and then many top Republicans are going along with it. Right. They'll they'll oppose. They'll fight every every inch of the Biden agenda. They'll fight every part of it except this. Yeah. They won't I, fight this. And
1: we should be clear. I mean, the way that spending works, it's not as though there's like a pot of money and because $70, $70 billion went to Ukraine, there is no longer $70 billion to go to the United States. I mean, that's not how the budget works. However, I think it is a demonstration of how the government is willing to spend, is willing to print money for one set category right. of things and not another category of things. So even if they were to persist in Ukraine, I do think this is a leverage opportunity to say, okay, if you're willing to come up with $70 billion for Ukraine, why can't you help the citizens of Flint, Michigan, or Mississippi, or any number of it, the dozens, I think almost thousands of cities in the United States that are suffering from a water crisis or the other infrastructure issues that are really hurting You're, you're right
0: that it doesn't work exactly like a pot of money, through because the government can just print more money, that kind of thing. But doing that also has economic consequences, right? It it Arguably, many economists will argue, it contributes to inflation. Um, it, you know, it has to it has to be paid for some way. Down, you know, down the line. they can borrow, they can wait. It's not like literally a pot of money that then they just run out. But it does have economic consequences. So what they prioritize matters, and this is what they prioritize, right? And and, I, and you're not wrong that you know while I would not necessarily um, probably spend money on many things you want to spend. If we're spending money at all, why is why is this the thing that gets that the money gets spent on? You Medical know, debt could be a. Be- yeah because I do cause. think
1: we agree on quite a few things. I don't I would you we agree about medical debt? Does it not seem to be a priority to make sure that a capital yeah. city of one of our states doesn't have brown water coming out of the tap or the ongoing crisis as for the We need Michigan
0: to uh, change lead pipes helping need with to be with changed and energy prices Absolutely. as we head into the
1: summer any and in the winter yeah. rather any number of things I can imagine we would agree on and a, a large number of Americans would agree on as well. Frankly, medical debt cancellation is enormously popular. And again, I'm sorry there was only one candidate in the race who was advocating for it, and it got very little media attention because there is not an interest with on Capitol Hill and among elites in actually doing things that serve the interests of the American people. So we'll continue to follow the story. And I, for one, am very happy that we're having more of a focus on uh, the things that Americans— the American government can do because so much of the conversation oftentimes by elites is a litany of excuses about why they can't do anything to actually help the people that they've been elected to serve. We'll have more rising for you after this. Former CNN host and anchor of Reliable Sources, Brian Stelter, has a new gig. Stelter scored a fellowship at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, where he will be talking about threats to democracy and responses from the media. He was let go from CNN last month as part of a facelift that network's new CEO, Chris Licht, has implemented in an effort to save the dwindling media giant, which continues to tank. Stelter is due to start his fellowship at Harvard
0: in the fall. Well, what, do you what, make of a, this? what a nice landing for the guy. How nice, isn't that nice?
1: Yeah, look, I do think that <laughs> it, it, is, it is frustrating because Brian was, I gotta give him credit, one of the few who even attempted, however clumsily, to bring in some leftists at various parts of his show and try to understand what was going on in other parts of the media sphere. The problem is that that effort seemed to be so limited. Um, and didn't extend into a place of real understanding. I mean, I remember when he had me and some other leftists on. The opening credit screen was of a number of logos that were supposed to represent the world of left media, left, you know, as we as leftists describe it. And it was it, things as diverse as like Chapel Trap House, okay, legitimately I would describe as left, and like MSNBC. <laughs> and it, you know, it's 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 like you know. Oh, I was going to say the name of another podcast that I don't think I can say on TV. But, you know, other other legitimately leftist sources. <laughs> I know which one you're talking about.
0: I'm like, oh,
1: yeah. you know, Legitimately yes. leftist sources and then just the same thing. Maybe leftists would have more
0: successful getting on TV if they could pick <laughs> <a> podcast names <laughs> that we could actually well, that's, say that's, on television. That's more of but, an entertainment. Uh, but, you know,
1: they have like Young yeah. Turks and Majority Report and things that I might not always agree with, but definitely are in the left media sphere. And then stuff that... That was mainstream liberal problem and that kind of inability to even understand at that basic level what you're even trying to get at what you're even trying to describe i think speaks to why you know the, mm-hmm. the the station as a whole, and his show in particular, was having these issues.
0: Look, I liked uh, Brian a lot personally. I'm grateful that he had me on um, a couple times. Uh, so he showed, reliable sources showed at least some interest in exploring. Because mm-hmm. I consider my perspective to be not a le- certainly not a left perspective, but right. an alternative perspective from the mainstream media. Um, he had our, our uh, Monday's co-host Bacha on uh, at least once, maybe more than once, uh, to talk in large part about her really, really uh, scathing criticism of the mainstream media, uh, kind of CNN I- included. So there was a, some self-reflection um, on occasion, but you're right that it, it was the, uh, it was sort of the Exceptions. face of yeah. the, and, and, and the main stick, the kind of threats to democracy stuff that CNN so has leaned into that I think, well, A, doesn't really have a, a, a viewer base. And yeah. let's remember that this is this is a teaching position at, at Harvard, and, um, and actually, the way journalism is taught and instructed uh, in a s- sort of scammy, hoodwinking way to young people is, uh, is something I'm very like wary of. Like, studying journalism at all, or the, the decision to study journalism, is something someone should make very carefully. Do not go into debt to study journalism. That is a mistake.
1: To be fair, he's teaching at the Kennedy School, which is a school of government. I don't believe Harvard has a journalism school at all. But, you know, in some ways that's even potentially more problematic because what is the kind of public policy value that he's going to bring to bear in this moment? It, it, it's, it's a, a media little... studies
0: class right it's, yeah it's I... I don't know what look if you want media experience do do an intern I mean, go, go to a college don't go into debt no one go into debt stop doing that mm-hmm. go to a college intern for your for uh, the local paper or the student paper or something then get an internship and and get some on-the-job experience and if you're good it can it can work out um don't don't like spend the next like five years of your life studying the art of the media and that like that is that is something I mean already very wealthy people I guess can do that because they have money to throw at that and then they know people who get them jobs in journalism but
1: but as Bhatia argues increasingly only very wealthy people can become journalists I, I always wanted to be a journalist growing up and just didn't think it was viable. Uh, financially. And so I went to law school and was able to kind of backdoor my way in. I think the it.
0: nepotism factor is a bigger th- factor than the, uh, the, the the money factor. The, I mean, we I mean, probably know, both of well. we know people, yeah. especially in political journalism, so many people who are scions, uh, they have famous last names, former congressmen, political figures, and they're well-connected and they can get their precious little darlings. Um, good job. And then, look, some of these people turn out to be good journalists or fine editors and reporters. Um, but uh, they definitely get, you get a leg up from knowing someone in this town or having a last name where someone knows yeah, who certainly. you are.
1: Well, look, this is a landing pad uh, going and having these kind of fellowships at Harvard is a landing pad that Brian Selter isn't the first to enjoy. Uh, I remember, you know, at the end of the 2016 Bernie campaign or sometime afterward, uh, my predecessor in the campaign, campaign, Simone Sanders, had a similar fellowship gig at Harvard and it often, I think, just serves as a landing pad for folks as they figure out their next move. So I guess we'll continue to see what happens to folks who are kind of leaving the CNN cinematic universe and making their way in the world.
0: <laughs> the CNN cinematic universe. <laughs> uh, like yeah, we're interested to see, you know, what the network looks like in the next uh, in the next year or two um, and see if they can, if, if truly what Chris Licht wants to do is win back um, people who are more in the center or even uh, right-leaning or, or viewing CNN as a place to just get kind of news without spin and, and so you might watch it even if you're right or let like mm-hmm. it's just the neutral channel which is I guess what the role it filled for a long time or purported to fill yeah. obviously there's ways that neutrality can be not actually neutral that that comes in with a lot of foreign policy coverage and mm-hmm. in fact that it purports to be neutral but has a kind of mm-hmm. bias toward intervention um so we'll see should, yeah. be, should be interesting yeah. more rising right after this
1: We want to bring you an update on the water crisis hitting Jackson, Mississippi. USA Today is reporting that some residents are experiencing brown water coming out of their faucets. And while the city said it has restored water pressure, people are still getting contaminated water. A reporter in the state shared this video of her running water in Jackson, Mississippi. And there's a new layer to this story. According to popular information, a multi billion dollar corporation, Siemens, has only made things worse. In 2010, the company installed new automated water systems and a new billing system. Residents in Jackson said they either did not receive any water bills or received water bills that were unusually high. In a 2020 legal battle between Siemens and the city of Jackson, uh, Jackson won a ni- nearly $90 million settlement. City officials said the company botched their work while Siemens accused the city of Jackson of failing to acknowledge broader problems with its water system. Yeah. So this was supposed to get the city, privatization was supposed to get the city something like $120 million in savings. Not only did that savings never materialize, but as we said, people were either never billed or billed at you know unusually high amounts. The city entered into a lawsuit to recoup some of that money, and it did win its lawsuit. However, it was not made whole in the judgment. And moreover, a third of the money that they did actually win back from Siemens went to legal fees. So you have... The poorest state in the Union, one of those poorest um, uh, cities in the country, that was really, you know, this crisis was really exacerbated. It wasn't caused initially by, but it was really exacerbated by the huge, um, you know, funding hit that the city took over this privatization deal. And now the governor is talking again about using privatization as a way to get out of the current crisis.
3: Mm.
0: Well, look, if they were engaged in this company, this private company, providing the water, if they engaged in fraud or shady business practices, then they should be sued. It sounds like they were and should be made to like, yeah, that's... Unfortunately, you know be handled, the, I mean. the,
1: the the problem with relying on legal recourse, and I'm glad they were able to get some of the money back, obviously. But the problem of relying on legal resources that even litigation favors people who have more money and resources. So you see this all the time, where even if richer um, litigants don't have the best case. They will choose to litigate because they know that they can afford attorneys and basically just wear out the opposition. And they know that they can pay if they lose and end up having to pay, in some instances, the legal fees of the other side. And so people who aren't able to do that don't want to Take the risk; they have a very different risk calculation, right? So, as in this case, even if you win your judgment, you aren't necessarily made whole, and who's to who's the one that's taking the hit on all of the citizens of Jackson? Well,
0: right. I mean, but the idea would be, you know, if this company has this history of not providing good service, like why would in, in the future it would behoove a, than a, a different city not to enter into an agreement with this company because they're shady and they screwed up last Well,
1: that time. might help the next city down the line, but unfortunately, look, the governor right now is talking about doing this again, doubling down, not with Siemens, but generally speaking with the privatization bill. We saw this happen in Flint, Michigan. Remember that the reason why Flint's pipes got corrupt, it wasn't just the pipes are old and they're falling apart as pipes do over time. It was the decision to switch the source of the city's drinking water from a clean, safe source um, to a dirty pool polluted source, which caused, um, it, you know, Permanent damage to the, the pipes and caused them to corrode in a way that, that de- corrupted the city's water supply. That decision display. was, and the, the decision was to to put the cleaner, good water for corporate interest toward a plant instead of it being diverted toward human beings.
0: The reason they decided to switch the water source was th- it would involve a basically a ma- like a shovel-ready projects kind of thing. They, th- the government in its, jo- I mean, I think this is a stupid idea, but it was very much like, a, oh, we can create jobs. Look at this. They'll have to do work on this on the the new facilities and they thought it'd be good for the community to like stimulate the economy to have jobs that was really dumb and it didn't work out well, and they yeah, ended then up then the, but it the was thing, a government right? i mean it was a government plan the
1: republican governor with the backing of barack obama i gotta say who went in there and justified a lot of it very famously drinking the tap water well, to prove that it was better after
0: the fact but you're you're it right was a republican governor and it was a it was a democratic city yeah. mayor it was a republican appointed it, it, it was disgusting a mess how many people officials. on both both yeah. sides
1: of the aisle very frequently couch things in terms of this is going to help the community when they really mean this is going to help business. And we're still being sold this dream of trickle-down opportunity, but what we see over and over again is that what comes out of your pipe slows to a trickle-down and your community is poisoned as a consequence
0: of these plans. One of the most outrageous, uh, so I paid more attention to the the Flint issue because I'm from Michigan uh, originally, Uh, one of the most outrageous things, aspects of that uh, horror story was that state employees, employees who worked for the state government but lived in the city at like you know, there's state agencies, state offices, state branches of things that were in the city. They had, for months before it was publicly revealed that the water was bad, they were getting clean water sent in, in like, by the barrel, by the bucket, <laughs> in, you know, the water cooler type thing. Disgusting. They were having that shipped in for them Disgusting. months before it was disclosed. For the public,
1: it's absolutely disgusting, and and it is an. We can all be outraged about that. It's like, why is it that you have Joe Biden, for instance, championing this infrastructure program for the entirety of his uh, administration, Mm -hmm. talking about how important it is to get back to the America of the 1950s and 60s we were proud of, where we had these great statewide, countrywide infrastructure projects that really, genuinely did enable industry, and to now not see nearly as much attention devoted to the crisis ongoing in the capital city of the state in the United States of America as attention is being paid to frolics and detours on the other side of the Atlantic in Ukraine. And I think that a lot of people are going to look at this and say, how, why should we believe you when you say, coming up to midterms or in the general election in a couple of years, why should we believe you when, we, you when you say you care about infrastructure, you care about communities of color? You know, there was all of this rhetoric that went on about South Carolina and Georgia and how it won Biden the presidency and then the Senate. And there's a real indifference that's showing, I think, into the amount of attention that's paid to these this crisis and the ongoing crisis, I will say that there's a spotlight because of the newsiness in, in Flint and now in, in Jackson, Mississippi. But there are water quality issues all across this country that are being ill-attended to while both parties bicker over You know whether or not kids can read X book in school or whether or not some trans kid can play on some team. And I'm not saying that those aren't issues that people have a legitimate interest in, but there really, I do think, needs to be a prioritization of what's going on if in the richest country in the history of the world Americans can't turn on their tap and know that they can drink safe drinking water.
0: My understanding, though, is that well, it's so gross to look at those pictures and imagine, like, how, imagine people having to cope with that, and they, obviously they shouldn't have to. Water standards have actually improved. So, so what is now considered unacceptable, like the, the Flint situation, uh, unacceptable, that standard was perfectly acceptable as recently as a, a few decades ago. So for most of U.S. history, people were drinking water of exactly Right. A few that decades quality. ago,
1: a lot of things were happening, including Well, no, say, but we
0: talk a lot about how everything seems bags. like it's getting worse. Everything's crumbling. Everything's bad. People, Most people in the country were drinking water of exactly that quality until recent memory.
1: Right, and we also had all kinds of rates of uh, higher, lower life expectancy, although, of course, now... Perhaps because we're returning to those eras well, of right. old oh, life. We're like always talking about how everything's getting, getting worse, but we have. Well, I do think we're we're things. doing the news, and the are, yeah. you know, to the extent that we're part of an important. The fourth estate is part of an accountability mechanism to hold people accountable. I don't think it's our job to sit around saying, you know, everything is daisies and roses. We well, should be putting not. pressure on elected officials to deliver in the ways that they were. elected. I don't think do any, anyone would ever
0: accuse us of sitting around and saying that everything's <laughs> all daisy and roses. Well,
1: as a final point, as a downer, I should. All be that it's daisy, worth, you be rose. Deal. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> Robbie um, but as a, as a as a Rosie Downer here I would also just like to point out that as the governor continues to talk about privatization in Mississippi it's worth noting that I believe the number is 56% uh, sorry that when when cities do off um, you know, bring in private actors to administer their water facilities. Those cities have a 50% 56% more uh, likelihood of having um, these kind of water quality issues, yeah. on top of having higher costs in in this in the place. So the fact that Jackson is so poor, it seems like a little bit of a counterintuitive choice to do something that would. Both has proven not to work in the city, is going to be at a greater cost to the citizens of the city, and also is statistically likely to lead to more water quality issues down the line. So we'll be continuing to follow that particular story, and we'll have more rising for you after this. Anti-monarchy protesters in the U.K. are facing arrest simply for criticizing the royal family. According to NPR reporting, a new law passed just last month allows police to act against protesters that, quote, may have a significant impact on others or are, quote, unjustifiably noisy. One 22-year-old charged was arrested and charged with breaching the peace in Scotland for holding this sign, which says F-imperialism, abolish the monarchy. And another man was violently pulled away from Queen Elizabeth's casket procession by British police after reportedly heckling Prince Andrew. Let's watch. <laughs> I'm
0: first,
2: you're
0: a
1: Disgusting! Oh, yeah, I've done nothing wrong. Of course, Chris Andrew, who has come under scrutiny for his associations with Jeffrey Epstein. So, you know, what do you make of all of this? There's been a lot of, you know, not not just here in the UK, but obviously online, where we, the the, the focus of a lot of speech discourse often is, has been on uh, the Nigerian professor who said that she, Basically, did not care that the queen had died, and frankly wished her, you know, to have a painful death. Something that I might not have said, but which people are putting in the context of. Queen Elizabeth having overseen the colonial oppression of her country of Nigeria, an instigator of the civil war there that resulted in the deaths of many of her own family members. And it does seem to be there's a little bit of a difference between how the victims of other kinds of violence are treated as they discuss their, the perpetrators, the people who oversaw the inequities that were done to them, and how people are being treated in the context of the royal family.
0: Because I I think this is, I want to discuss the kind of censorship protesting issue. I don't want to get bogged down in the colonialism debate i would my is it counter- a to what, it's not a debate but queen elizabeth was is not responsible for the she's a figurehead right she's a is she she's a figurehead a who could have
1: spoken out against what was being done in the name of the crown
0: okay but it's not fair to attribute to her these like these are government policies that Is she's it fair not to attribute to
1: joe biden the fact that inflation is high or that we're at war he with- is
0: responsible for government policy queen elizabeth is not
1: I'm sorry. So, uh, she's not the prime minister, she's not
0: the parliament. A, a,
1: A crown which is on, which frankly had a lot more control earlier in her reign and had a much less symbolic role than it does now. The Queen Elizabeth is largely seen as overseeing the transition from a more active crown to a more passive figurehead crown. But when she came into power, it was at the end of a lot of the of the colonial regimes in a lot of these countries. Nigeria, for instance, became independent in 1960. Right. They were pivoting
0: away from colonialism. They were disbanding the colonial So it was truly a colony
1: at the point in which Queen Elizabeth became the Queen of England. Right. And you're saying that a country that has been under the colonial heel— we talk a lot about imperialism and why it's bad on this show— so a country that was under the heel of an imperial state like England was— Does not, someone, a citizen of that country or former citizen of that country doesn't have the right to uh, express dissatisfaction with the
0: face of the right. that regime. They absolutely have the right. And I agree that these protesters in the street here, what, so they don't necessarily have the right because they don't live in the United States, they live in the United Kingdom where there's no First Amendment. Well, the professor's
1: um, tweet was taken down off, off
0: no, no, Twitter. I'm talking about the protesters. No, I I've understand
1: that. But, but I'm saying that even in America, there's some people who are not having the right to speak freely as well, just like the ones in England. But I'm sorry, we can go back to the, the, the UK examples.
0: Uh, this shows you why the First Amendment, which we do have, is so important. Uh, it, Protects utterly your right to say things that other people find insensitive or insulting in the in the public space in the street, and uh, it's a it's a good thing because people absolutely should, deserve, should have the right to scrutinize and to criticize harshly and sensitively, even if I disagree with it, uh, their, their government, their their monarch, their leaders, their powerful people. And we have that. And other countries don't, including the UK, where you can be arrested, jailed, et cetera, for, um, for insensitive public speech. And people are all the time for hate speech, which lacks any kind of actual definition and is just a catch-all term that the authorities can use to arrest, imprison, fine, hassle you, harass you for... Uh, for engaging in speech. These people were engaging in speech and uh, they and with the Epstein connections to Prince Andrew that's a very legitimate area of topic. It's one we've explored on the show uh numerous times. So uh, so I we, we're not going to disagree substantively on what should happen to these people. They absolutely have the right to to disagree, but I, I see you giving me the no, you want to go back to the No, like she was not I don't hold Elizabeth II and, responsible for What's
1: very interesting is that so much of, of what Africa. folks which is an interesting choice. But what's so interesting is that so much of what folks focused about on that professor's tweet is the idea that it was distasteful. And I think that that's perfectly fair. Again, I wouldn't choose to express myself in exactly that way. Of course, May my own ancestors be excruciating. That yeah, was the... my, my own ancestors, you know, were subjugated differently and frankly might have been freed earlier if the united states hadn't broken away from england which did in slavery before the united states of america so i have my own colonial journey that i'm on so i don't share her same very personal relationship to what england as a colonial power has done however i certainly no matter what a nice and charming person they might have been would happily say, use a similar level of vitriol if i ever knew the names or came and came and, you know went back in time and came in contact with someone who had enslaved one of my ancestors. And I have very harsh words for people who have caused immediate harm to me and my family as a person who is alive today. So I certainly wouldn't begrudge anybody that but what i'm curious about is that so much of it seemed to be about whether or not it was distasteful and certainly hollering at a funeral procession is similarly i think perceived as distasteful to other people so i wonder whether or not you think it is appropriate in the same way that people thought it was inappropriate for this professor to tweet for someone to start shouting about the accusations against prince andrew in the context of the queen's uh, processional
0: do i think it was inappropriate no not really um Mm. It's a it's a public person in a public place, um, and it's they have the right. I mean, they have the right to do it. it it's so beside the point whether I find it distasteful or not. I mean, I wouldn't. Would I particularly? I would not choose to interrupt, you know, funeral processions. Uh, but we, but even like in America, even the Westboro Baptist Church, the most vile disgustingly hateful group of people you can possibly imagine have had their rights litigated at the highest court in the land, and they get to shout, good riddance, for glad you died, and expletives at our service people. I just so. think that
1: that's interesting, because at the end of the day, so much of what the, but I do if think you, that speech is insensitive. Minute, but if you don't want to litigate the substance of whether or not the professor was right or wrong, or, or should be able for under, uh, on, a, on a speech analysis to say what she said, all that's really left is this conversation about how it was in bad taste. And there was a lot of words and a lot of heat devoted to how inappropriate it was for her to have said that. And that's why we got into the colonial debate, as you put it, because people were trying to push back and offer why, in fact, in the context of her own family's experience, it might be considered to be less I think appropriate. think it's distasteful so it just, to— it it's just interesting Wish to me. For
0: excruciating pain on someone uh, in, in almost all circumstances. I just, it's really. interesting
1: to me to have a lot so much more energy devoted to explaining why a colonial subject is distasteful for saying what she did but no one thinks it's distasteful for someone to shout out and call out an alleged pedophile in the context of his mother's funeral brigade. I would argue that you know, it, it says something about the value that we put on the underlying claims that both of those people are raising. That people think there's a lot more credibility and legitimacy to someone talking about Andrew, who is not the queen, and his presence at that funeral, and his, the accusations that have been made about him with Epstein, than they do to put in the credi- they, then credibility they put in the weight and value of a colonial subject whose family has been subject to a, a truly brutal civil war that a lot of people are ignorant of, and that it just really is a cultural values I I, guess don't, I values don't think here. it's.
0: Well, maybe I'm maybe I'm holding a professor of sociolinguistics to a slightly higher standard than some random heckler on the street. Is, it, is she not because she's... I, she I, can't
1: tweet? We don't, you don't have, when you just tweet about the Legends of Zelda or whatever, it's that in your professional capacity and every single tweet you do is reflective of your professional life?
0: Uh, no, and I, I've certainly tweeted things I've regretted in the past, as I'm sure you have, but... But I would regret the things I tweeted in the past that were bad. You should regret. It's not a good thing to tweet a call for someone to suffer excruciating pain. That's something probably most people watching us, I think, would agree with. And I think, even a lot if of, that person is I, a flawed person and, and a lot has of people, been part of a family that was a flawed family and a bad, like a well, legacy. But to be
1: honest, I think just referring to them as flawed when you have overseen the mass murder and suffering of millions of people across the globe caused famines intentionally, but caused millions of people to suffer and die, real life human beings, I think minimizing it by characterizing it as flawed is exactly the problem here. And the fact of the matter is that I think that people are speaking out of a grand historical ignorance about exactly what the crown did and the horrors that they subjected almost every corner of the world to. And actually I think this is a wonderful learning moment, whatever you think about the tone of the professor's comment to use this opportunity to learn something about colonial history, especially as we talk so much, and importantly on this show, about the risks of our own imperial uh, endeavors right now, opening the door to that kind of um, uh, um, world-building exercise that used to be very common uh, when the crown really did rule the world. but. We will, I'm sure, I'm sure continue to have that particular conversation.
0: Tomorrow on Rising, Sabrina Salvati will be here to discuss AOC's cover on GQ. Looking we, forward to that.
1: Yeah, that should be fun. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow.
0: I'm going to go watch that Legend of Zelda trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody.